I think that seems a lot more like hopeful and collective rather than an apocalyptic story in the way that you, you've been talking about this, Adam, which is perhaps more about just like trying to not die, whether that means like individually or, you know, you have your collective interests too, but it's a little easier to forget about the collective responsibility than when time is the centerpiece. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And since tomorrow is Ian's birthday, we're going to say our favorite things about Ian. And since this is just a short introduction and we can't go on for the entire hour, we'll only just say one apiece. Because we really could. So I'm going to say that one of my favorite things about Ian is his endless enthusiasm for life and new ventures. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel (laughs) Congregation. I mean, it's literally the reason why this podcast exists. So (laughs) thank you. I was going to say probably the same thing, but using different words in a succinct fashion. Uh, Insatiable (laughs) curiosity is the thing that I like the most about Ian. I'm going to go because I'm sure I'll probably bring the timbre of things down. Uh, So (laughs) I would expect nothing less. There we go. Right. So uh, my name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. Uh, I think the thing that I appreciate most about Ian is he is the only person who's not a family member that texts me. So when my phone beeps, Rachel goes, is it Ian? And I say, yep. It's not like I do it that often. It's adorable. But I do. <laughs> I have to check in, you buddy. It's like academic day. Hey, academic. It's, it's good. Uh-oh. I'm glad someone checks in on me. I mean, in all likelihood, I'll probably be found dead in my office one day. So it's good to have someone check in on With me. all these texts from me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. And I also really appreciate Ian's enthusiasm, but I will add on a particular instance in which that is greatly appreciated, which is his responsiveness to emails and text messages that I forget to respond to, and then I don't have to feel bad once I know at least somebody has responded. It's the post-it notes. That's how he does it. (laughs) That's right. You've seen him. Uh, Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And my favorite thing about me uh, uh, is right now, I'd say my family. I'm watching them run around and my son is in the background holding up cute signs for me saying, go daddy down the wormhole. And now I just put them onto his sword and I need to take a picture. We definitely have to share that with the, uh, the audience. It's very that cute. Sweet. So, yes, that's my favorite thing right now. Hmm. Okay, so now I'm going to go cry Happy for a little birthday. bit, and I'll be right back. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> well, I'm I glad that we started on a, on a high note, um, <laughs> because I have a feeling that the general tenor of this conversation <laughs> may take some downward turns. Though, I got to say, 
So I, I understand that we are in the midst of a global pandemic, the likes of which have not been seen perhaps ever in terms of its length and breadth. So we will not just be talking doom and gloom today because nobody is picking up uh, a podcast today and saying, you know what, I need a break from all the news on social media and on the news about all of this horrible things. I'm going to listen to a fun podcast about a movie that I love, and I'm going to listen to them talk for an hour about the end of the world. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> I won't let as, you. As much as I would I love let to. Because yeah. eschatology is totally my jam, which is a, uh, a, a, a fancy theological way of saying the end of things, the study of the end. There's actually, there's two Greek words for the end, uh, eschaton and telos. Eschaton meaning uh, just the literal end. Telos meaning uh, more of a uh, completion, uh, you know, the uh, the end of a story when, when things end with a purpose. Eschaton is just the end. So there's not any inherent meaning in that. We add meaning to it. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Because, so I am fascinated by the ways in which cultures talk about cataclysm hmm. man i don't know how i'm gonna make this peppy um the end Just with your with your <laughs> with your with your enthusiasm about talking yes about with it. my with, with my yes. and ian's jeff, curiosity and jeff once said yeah. that i had boundless energy and enthusiasm yeah, that's right peppy background music i love it mm. yeah we'll go, we're gonna go for the peppiest the peppiest of background music, because this is going to come out on the 15th. At least it would have if I hadn't messed up the release schedule. I mean, sorry to interrupt you, Zach, from the past, as you were. Which is in the, the Christian world, a few days after Easter, when we're all talking about new life and resurrection. So we're going to bring it back around to some of that, too. Because in all of the stories that I'm really interested in, when... Uh, when we're talking about final cataclysms, there's almost always, maybe with very few exceptions, stories, uh, they end with some kind of a hope for something new and good and better. And for thousands of years, we have told these stories when things have seemed like they're at the worst. When, when you look around and you say that children aren't respecting their parents anymore, there's just wanton disregard for elders and sexual immorality left and right. It's the same. Oh, and corrupt politics. It's the same exact thing in almost every ancient text when they're talking about what the end of the world is going to be like. It's just like kids are bad and there's Get sex all mind. over the place and it's no good and bad. And so God's going to destroy the thing. Like that's, that's almost the preface to every single apocalypse in the ancient world. Which is comforting because everyone thinks that they're unique and everyone thinks that their end is the end. But it hasn't been yet. And so in all of these old apocalypses, these end time stories, things get as bad as they could possibly get before they end. And then there's some happy conclusion to it. And that's really overgeneralizing. And I'll get into some specifics later. But we've always done that in the context of religion of our common stories, our uh, mythologies. There's always been heavenly battles and wars and cosmic comeuppance. But now, 
we're in an age of ever increasing uh, secularity. Is that a word? Secularness. Secularism? Secularosity. I don't like the isms. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what I mean to say is we're less concerned about stories about God and spirits and beings. And um, we're more interested in things that we can touch and feel and see and measure. And so how have then our stories changed and evolved? And I think that Interstellar is a stellar example (laughs) of how we do this, this creative storytelling without relying on deities. And in some cases, you might argue that it kind of does. And most of these generally tend to as well. But through the, this this modern form of sci-fi, we're finding new ways of exploring humanity's lowest and the hope we might find to get out of it. And so we could spend several miniseries talking about the movie Interstellar and its science behind it. And I would, I would encourage everyone who can to check out Kip Thorne's book that he wrote as a, um, as a companion to this movie, because it is, it is really interesting. And so the backup for those of you who don't know this, this movie was a, a kind of passion project for, for the Nolan brothers, uh, Christopher and Jonathan. Am I getting that right? Yes. Yes. Christopher and All Jonathan where they uh, they they were working on an idea for some time and kind of at the same time uh, there were there were other people working on similar ideas and their their stories kind of converged and uh, Kip Thorne who's a theoretical physicist was brought on as the science advisor uh, scientific consultant and executive producer and from the very beginning they had a strict set of rules and he says that first Nothing in the movie can violate established physical laws. So at one point, he had this argument with Christopher Nolan for weeks when Christopher Nolan was trying to make one of the characters travel faster than light. And he says, no, look, we can get around this with with time and space dilation and wormholes and all of that, but we cannot travel faster than light. That is a law of the universe. And I will not bend on this. And second, that all the wild speculations that may come out of this would spring from science and not from the, quote, fertile mind of a screenwriter. So in, in the book, he, he breaks it down into these categories of, of things that are, are scientific fact, things that are scientifically plausible, but unproven, and then things that are wild speculation, that, but are still based on science and the amount of work and uh, consultations that were done in this movie is just amazing. Just the black hole uh, gargantua in this movie, individual frames of this took a hundred hours a piece to render. Hmm. The amount of physics that went into creating the visual of that black hole spawned um, something like three different papers about uh, about black holes. Throughout the movie, you'll see all of these equations written all over chalkboards um, that they're trying to figure out. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to harness 
gravitational anomalies to send this enormous spacecraft hurtling out of the atmosphere and through this uh, through this wormhole that's been placed there mysteriously, and they can't they can't figure it out. And all of those equations that are all over the boards are his equations that are were were in working out the science, the physics behind all of this. So if we wanted to, we could spend weeks just breaking down the science of this movie because it is rich and wonderful and beautiful. And so I would instead invite you to read that book during quarantine or the audiobook. That's how I read it. I, and I will also add that, you know, if if the entire book is not possible, there's a, a lovely article which will be in our show notes where Neil deGrasse Tyson actually goes over the science in there and talks a lot about those those particular pieces, but in um, in his usual digestible way. Um, so mm. like I said, there'll be a, I didn't know that. <clears throat> okay. So, so confession myself confession. I have not seen the movie interstellar. And so in preparation for today's, uh, conversation, I have just read about the movie <laughs> and I have read things talking about the movie. So, um, Please, listeners, take that with a grain of salt for anything that I might say. Um, but yeah, that's mm. why I've, I've looked up a whole lot of articles on the plot and the science and all that jazz. Um, okay. But I might get some actual plot points incorrect. So I will stay quiet. It's also near, a nearly three-hour movie. And so if we want to yeah. talk about plot points, we're going to be just doing that. But mm -hmm. the basis yeah. of the movie, for those of you who are unfamiliar, maybe you saw it a long time ago, is that the world is falling apart. And the particular way that the apocalypse, the end of the end of humanity is coming is through blight, which when I first watched the movie, I didn't pick up on. Did anybody else pick up on that? Or did you think it was a global warming situation? I thought they were connected. Uh, yeah, I thought they were connected too. He, he makes it pretty clear in the book that they're not. Huh. <laughs> oh, I've not read any but of the book. It's I just in, it's just because it's in our cultural milieu that that climate change is going to ruin everything, that whenever we see a post-apocalyptic world now where crops are failing, we just assume that it's because of climate change. But um, he actually, they wanted to do something that wasn't climate change related. Oh, hmm. so you're telling me that I got to read something now? Ah, uh, you can listen to it. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about movies. I mean, what else are you doing? I'm, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Writing your own book, maybe? Yeah, I'm trying to again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, so so the the oxygen's being depleted. That we're they're living in a kind of post truth world where where people doubt the the moon landing and um, oh yes, and and there's there's all these weird gravitational anomalies that lead them down this path to the secret NASA base where they're where they're trying to save humanity get them off of earth because a wormhole has opened up next to Saturn. Right. Um, Saturn. Yep. And they've seen through the wormhole that there are a number of potentially habitable planets that are revolving around this, this slowly rotating black hole. And they've sent scouting missions through and a few of them have come back looking promising, but it's so hard to say because because of the time dilation and because of the distortion that comes through the wormhole, they can't know unless they go there. So that is kind of what sets up the rest of the movie. And since Rachel hasn't 
seen it, then I won't spoil any of the major Feel, feel final free to spoil. Feel free to spoil because I've read everything about it. So, <laughs> I, I read things that said spoiler alert and I went, keep reading. So I'm, I'm fine with spoilers. Right, and the movie then. the movie came out in 2014, so I think we feel generally comfortable to to make those spoilers because it's it's not new. Hmm. My child was born in 2014, so I haven't seen any movie since then. And he's, he's not new. <laughs> no, no, no offense, not. your child, your child is beautiful. So in this movie, they are there is a a scientist played by Michael Caine, Professor Brand, and he is trying to work out the physics behind harnessing these gravitational anomalies to send massive spacecrafts out of Earth's orbit and through that that wormhole and into one of those habitable planets, because they're convinced that that wormhole was opened up by some other transdimensional being to save us. And so we need to take advantage of it while we can. And right there you have this otherworldly salvation, the deus ex machina that that is coming down to save humanity. But we have to be the ones to figure out the mechanics of it. Like it's not just given to humanity. It's not just a, a white horse that comes down. We have to be the ones to do that. And they use science to do that, which is not obviously not something that shows up in the ancient stories of, of the end of the world. It's, it's always that humanity is kind of helpless when we reach our end. And I'm wondering if, if there's something in that, that in, in our scientific culture, if we are not feeling more empowered by science than pre-scientific people did by religion. Ask that again. Well, so it, it's something that I've, I've I've seen in other science fiction as well, that science gives people the tools to do it themselves, to solve the problems. And even, even we talked about contact, where mm-hmm. the aliens sent the plans, but we still had to decode it and make the thing. Mm-hmm. And well, the rich billionaire did. Oh, of course, because right America, it. yeah, right. <laughs> but do you think that that science has generally given uh, people a, more of a feeling of personal agency in in solving the, the the problems of the world than religion has, or am I mis misreading that? I think it's hard to answer that question, yes or no, because like if you're talking about a moment in time and whether science was more empowering or not but for some people yes (laughs) Uh, but I think even if you are scientifically inclined and sure science the development of science have been like critically empowering in uh, all sorts of ways it also is a driver of curiosity and I think there's also a part in which the more you know, the more confused you are and the more that you 
realize that you don't know. So it is empowering and also frustrating because I think it makes you realize how small you are. Um, Mm. But I think the, the other side of that question that I'm thinking of is just that while there are people who will be empowered by scientific knowledge, there are, I think, always going to be a portion of people who still find their ultimate rest or ultimate comfort in um, their religiosity. And I don't think it's like either or. I think people, as we've talked a lot about, I think on this podcast, um, people who like live or dip their toes in both of those realms. And I think that religion and science uh, provide different kinds of comfort. And it's just such a weird, like interconnected web of uh, like thoughts that people use to like provide meaning for themselves that it's really hard to separate out those two things and say this is empowering and this is not so yeah i think that's probably how i feel about it well and i'll confess some of my bias coming at this from somebody who was raised on the left behind series which we talked about before and the 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 kind of uh the end is coming and god will make everything right so we don't necessarily need to worry as much about fixing everything and doing it ourselves because the book of revelation is super fiery and it all gets burned up and there's a lot of weird stuff happening, but it all gets burned up and God has to come in and do everything. So it's almost like God invites you to help recreate the world in this beautiful, wonderful way. But in the end, you're always going to come short. So God's going to have to come in and shake the etch-a-sketch and start over again. And so I never really felt completely empowered through that particular Christian eschatology to actually do anything to, to, to feel that I had that much control over the future of, of humanity. Yeah. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I, and yet there are people who I think would take that same set of like cultural tools of like the left behind series and interpretations of like humans being ultimately helpless and in the hands of God, that I think is also uh, really comforting and empowering for some people. Um, like, oh, I can't do anything to fix this terrible situation, so I just have to trust God. And while for some people that clearly seems like not empowering whatsoever, hmm. to others it's like, yeah, I don't have to be worried because it's like out of my control and that's almost – um and that's almost a relief. And I think you actually mm-hmm. can have both of those interpretations in Interstellar. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Way to bring it back around to the movie. But I was going to jump in before that, bringing it back around. So I've been listening to this, and I don't have that cultural understanding that you have, Zach. Um, nor do I have the religious understanding from that. So when you when you ask the question, I uh, my answer starts similar to Kendra's, and then I think it really depends on the specific time and place that you're you're thinking of. And for Judaism, I really divide it into oh, three, four ish big chunks: the biblical Judaism, which if you really want to say biblical Judaism, call it 
the first uh, 2000 years prior to rabbinic Judaism. So 1800 BCE, give or take, is the start of biblical Judaism. Um, up until the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, which was really the start of rabbinic Judaism as a thing rather than just an offshoot. Mm. Um, and then rabbinic Judaism for about 1,500 years. Um, and then the last 500 years, you could either keep as five, 600 years, keep as its own thing or split that also for the last couple hundred years with the Enlightenment and the the general feeling uh, from the French Revolution of every person is, uh, you know, every person is equal and brotherhood and all that jazz, which includes Jews then. And so what do we do about them? Every, as a total parenthetical aside, this is how my mind works. Um, I Every time I say that, I always hear the song from Sound of Music, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? But it's How Do You Solve a Problem Like the Jews? Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's that's kind of been that's <laughs> um, kind of how the external world has mm. viewed us for a very very long time like how do you solve Neat. the problem of the Jews and there's lots written about that um, but that's for a different for day. the record I don't see the Jews as a problem well thank you gonna, nor, nor do I put but, that out there thank you <laughs> um, so when you're talking about this, I'm going back to early rabbinic Judaism, first thousand, you know, first first millennia, and I'm I'm looking at that, and I'm reminded of a couple of stories, and I think I might have shared one of these before, but it's basically the idea. Um, Rabbi Hillel says, "You are not required to finish the work; neither are you free to desist from it." And then another idea in that same vein is if you are in the middle of planting a seedling and the Messiah comes, you finish planting the seedling and then greet the Messiah. Huh. Because, You're going to have to unpack that one a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> because the idea that was really established in early rabbinic Judaism is that we do have the control. We do have the ability to fix this world. There is not going to be a fiery end. There's not going to be another uh, global flood like there was in Noah. That was the whole point of the covenant. And the whole point of the covenant that was given to Abraham, again, this is rabbinic interpretation of biblical texts, mm -hmm. was that we've got this, that God's going to be with us and we're going to mess up and it's okay. But the world that we look at is a partnership, right? That's really what a covenant means. A covenant is a relationship contract. And hmm. that means we are here to help repair the world. Our job is to see a problem and make it better. And if you're planting a tree, that means you're making the world better because, of course, it's going to be a carob tree and carob trees. It takes, you know, 70 years for it to fruit, which means that you have the hope that there is going to be 70 years worth and somebody is going to be there 70 years later. Right. This is the the carob tree and the Honey story. Um, and the, the question is, well, you know, why are you planting this tree? Well, they were here when I was here. So 
you know, why wouldn't I? Somebody planted this for me. I'm going to plant this for somebody else, even if I myself will not reap the benefits. So all those stories tied in together. And so if you're in the action of making the world right, of bringing justice, bringing mercy, bringing sadaka. Uh, sadaka is often translated as charity, but it's really obligatory, obligatory compassion um, expressed in a tangible financial or goods kind of way. And if in that time the Messiah then comes and says, hey, what's going on? You're like, let me finish doing my part. Then you can take over. Because we're never, we're never exactly sure, but what we are sure of are our own actions. And that's what we have the most control over. That's so interesting to me because the, what, I'm, what I'm most familiar with is Second Temple um, apocalypticism. So pre-rabbinical, but post-biblical like this so, period of ah, during during mm. Greek occupation and the Hasmonean period and the kind of the period in in between the Hebrew scriptures and Jesus, where there's this flourishing yeah. of of literature uh, that all kind of sound like the end of Daniel and, uh, mm. about various ways that the world is going to end and that the Son of Man shall return and the Messiah will mm. come and everything will be there'll be punishment and judgment and and this is kind of the world that Jesus comes out of and Christianity is very much an apocalyptic religion early on they all expected that the end was coming i mean even Jesus after he gave his little apocalypse says um Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death before seeing the Son of Man coming in his glory. And, you know, the early church took him at his word and mm -hmm. really thought that he was coming next Tuesday. And we're very <laughs> confused when he didn't because Christianity wasn't set up to be um, a long-term religion. It was set up to be an apocalyptic religion about mm -hmm. the end. And it seems that after the destruction of the temple and the scattering of of all jewish people and and christians for that time period before constantine we 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 kind of all had to figure out what the world looks like when the apocalypse happened and then god didn't come back right jerusalem yeah. being destroyed is the apocalypse it's the end that's that's the end of the world as far as oh. jews and christians are concerned at that time period right and what do you do after that, when you have to settle in and figure out how to live now. So and we own like bonus time now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Bonus that level. Is, that yeah. is what should be taken away from that. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, bonus, okay. bonus time. Um, but it's, it's like in, mm. in soccer when you don't know how long you have left in, in the time. Cause there's, yeah. there's no timer and the ref just goes, all right, you're done now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we rarely do sports analogies. I have to look that one up. I think I don't really watch soccer, but I watched it once and it was very confusing. Can I just say, by the way, that maybe my favorite apocalypse from this time period is is in uh, Fourth Ezra, where the all of creation is destroyed, but then it gets to take a nap for a week before the new <laughs> one is created. 
seven days returning to primeval silence before being resurrected into the new creation. And most of them just go straight from destruction to new creation and nobody gets a break. And so I really like the fact that we get to have a week off. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to look, going back to Kendra's point, I'm going to have to look, watch this movie eventually um, and and see which, which view, because I was reading, like, that sounds like a very dystopian perspective, but I, I don't know. Is it, is it, that is it that dire uh yeah uh i'd say that there are definitely parts that are pretty dire okay i think it's hopeful um, overall though yeah yeah okay. it ends very hopeful <laughs> okay well so it, it comes out midway through the movie that professor brand had been lying about Plan to A. Everybody. Plan A was to create this gravitational well to then send people off and, and save them. That was plan A. Plan B was to send a bunch of embryos off to another planet to, to restart humanity and have kind of a primordial Adam and Eve there to raise everyone. And he, he always thought plan B was the only one, but he, he lied to people saying that plan A was possible in order to give them hope. And so that's the part of the movie where it's like, all right, there's no hope. This is all for naught. And We've got this uh, random Matt Damon spotting because mm. we all have to be saving Matt Damon in every movie ever. Every movie. Yep. Every movie right. ever. He's so helpless. Um, <laughs> oh, he's definitely but, helpless in this one. But you get a lot of 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 the selfishness of humanity in that, and you're feeling real dystopian. But but then as it all comes around at the end, and we we realize that. The gravitational anomalies that we saw from the beginning were actually coming from our main character mm -hmm. and that perhaps it was humanity all along reaching back from the future to save itself from destruction and that we are perhaps our own salvation, our own agents, that we, through the laws of physics without being having to be supernatural in any way, shape or form, can become our own salvation the best of humanity triumphs in the end and um, it's all, it's all happy or that's one interpretation of it. Um, it's not the only one. And I think I would add that it's not just that humans like become so technologically advanced that, that we are able to save ourselves, but that there's also this really uh, beautiful poetic element to the narrative where the only way, like there's a moment when Cooper is in the Tesseract and he is working through who they are and mm. how they have this like infinite power to uh, move through space and time, but that they don't, like given that power, they are unconnected to specific moments in time. Mm. And that the reason Cooper has to help these other beings who we can describe as like an advanced human civilization that has now achieved this like great power. Cooper is a human like from, I guess it's weird to, I'm now moving back to linear time, but a, an sure. earlier kind of human. And so he is bound by time and space in a way that the future civilization is not. And so they are using him to connect with Murph in the Tesseract through the bookcase. And it is the bond that they have as family and yep. that 
is mm-hmm. really, I think, n- not just Murph and Cooper's bond, but also the other bonds that the characters in the film create with one another that allows the characters to have the will almost to like progress through the story and to do things that they maybe would not have otherwise had the motivation to do. Um, and so I think the poetic part of the story is, you know, it's about love and love will <laughs> set us free. But I think it, love it like, conquers all. it's, you know, it sounds really cheesy to like say it that way, but it's actually a really uh, central part of no, but Nolan's true. Uh, yeah. telling of the story. And about how your limitations could potentially be your unique strengths. Yeah. 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 But Adam, you look like you have been chomping at something. No. (laughs) Every time you lean forward, I think you're about to say something. No, 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 I'm not. (laughs) I I, I mean, I will say something. Would you like to say something? I I mean, uh, this is no Pan's Labyrinth, right? But no, it's it's definitely not a Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, That's that's for sure. Better, but that's okay. (sighs) Man, just (laughs) just just hating on hating on magical realism. There's just Um, less reading. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's really, that's really it. Um, no, I, I, so I, I have to say, I, I, <clears throat> I will confess, I don't like apocalypticism <laughs> at all, like ever. Um, I, I just, <laughs> I, it, it's, it's like my least favorite part of studying religion, <laughs> hands down. And I don't know why per se. Like I feel like that's surprising. I should like it, and well, and I wouldn't don't. you describe? Would you describe yourself as more pessimistic or optimistic? <laughs> we've talked about the continuum that we seem to have amongst the five of us. I'm sorry, I, have what? you met him? <laughs> I know that's I, why I'm trying to figure it out. How, I think I, he would call right? himself a realist, and <laughs> I'd refuse your your binary. Um, no, yeah. I. <laughs> No, I, 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 definitely, <laughs> I, 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 I would definitely put myself on the pessimistic end of the range, one hundred percent. And and I appreciate there is a certain strain of pessimism in apocalypticism. Um, okay. But, right, I, 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 I think Zach's probably on on target, right? Like, it's not a realist pessimism. And that is more interesting to me, right? So, like, okay. the the apocal apocalypticism is like really good fiction from that time, hmm. particularly like Second Temple apocalypticism, right? Like, you know, I mean, there are a whole bunch of apocalypses that go way outside of Judaism and Christianity from that period of time. It's just a really popular genre of writing, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, no matter how you sort of frame it, it feels escapist to me. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I just can't ever get behind. Agreed. So while it's while I know that that's not the intention uh, in in much apocalyptic literature, I I don't think it has the effect that it seeks to create, and I find it really problematic. Well, I, we it comes out more... of a period of time. <laughs> Kendra's like, ah. Well, I, I just want you to say more about what's escapist about it. Because I think that there's a fine line between 
something being escapist versus something, and this would be how I would describe uh, at least Interstellar, is that what the the solution to the problem is to leave what can no longer sustain. So there is, they are like literally escaping their current situation. But I think that there's still a lot of weight and um, like an emphasis on what is lost or like the risk of having to make decisions to work towards a solution. Whereas for me, I think of escapist stories as maybe um, making light of what's at stake or like what is being risked when you leave something. Okay. So, so everybody has loved interstellar so far. Yeah, we do. So justify yourself. My usual (laughs) feeling, right? Um, Here, I will, let me offer you an alternative reading of interstellar. Yeah. Go ahead and try Adam. Okay. Yeah. Um, Bring it on. Right. (laughs) So as much as interstellar is very careful about astrophysics, it's not so careful about describing planetary destruction. So while the science is great on how we escape, it's Mm -hmm. not particularly great about describing the very slow process of planetary death. I think one could argue that a technological salvation being offered is awfully escapist. That a realist attitude towards a planetary blight is one that focuses resources on dealing with said blight and that the effort and energy of the film directing us towards making us start anew someplace else is inherently escapist. Yeah, but then you wouldn't be able to call it interstellar. (laughs) <laughs> also true. You'd I mean, call it planet first... bound. There you go. That's the first knock on your argument. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think the, the, the piece that I would want to push, right, is that the interstellar travel piece probably wouldn't work. And there's a little part of me that, that reads interstellar as giving people hope for a technological salvation from potential climate problems that people shouldn't have. Hmm. I mean, I don't think that's but, the film's intention. And yet I still but, think it's like a reading that comes from it. But Kip Thorne says it could work. Yeah. Well, but, but the, um, <laughs> the rest of the world was trying to solve the problem on the earth. It was just this secret NASA project that was not, that wasn't like the world's energies were going into this project. It was like a handful of former NASA scientists where, or hold up in this bunker. Right. But this is, this is the apocalyptic piece, right? The apocalyptic piece doesn't tell the story of the rest of the world. That's the story I want to hear, but apocalypse doesn't, but (laughs) (laughs) that's why I want to hear that story. No, I like, no, but, but, but apocalypse tells the story of the escape, right? It doesn't tell Mm -hmm. that story of the people who are behind. They are the ancillary character, the background against which the story gets told. That's the part that just is always more inherently interesting to me. So I would say that the story that you are talking about is a story that comes from a place of privilege and that the the apocalypticism, we're all a little bit privileged. 
So the story of apocalypticism always comes from oppressed groups. It, it it's never the Romans that are telling stories of apocalypticism. It's oh, it's always not true. There are Roman apocalyptics. No, not not during that time. Oh, period. here we go. Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, like I mean, it's it's a popular more. literary genre coming from the top. I have never read a Roman apocalyptic before. <clears throat> Challenge accepted. All right, go uh, <laughs> figure it out. Figure it out because I'm ready to be wrong. Yeah, I wasn't wrong. At least I don't think I was. Am. Whatever. It's been a month since we recorded this, and there's still no evidence that I've found of non-Christian Roman apocalyptic literature. I mean, sure, they love stories about people dying in large numbers, but none of the powerful nations in that time period had any real interest in the ending of the age. I mean, why would they? That age was pretty kind to them. But hey, I'm still willing to be wrong, so feel free to let me know about any good Greco-Roman apocalypses that I could sink my teeth into. Sure could use some light pandemic reading in these times. Um, <laughs> Keep talking. So they, they come go. out of civilizations and, and societies, but rarely when they're at their peak. They, they usually come when, when they have, as a people felt such existential dread that they have no hope left in in conventional ways of solving things. I I I think though in America the return to apocalypticism happened after the wars and after we realized that science gave us the atomic bomb instead of universal food and happy miracle pills that make everyone healthy and they are most popular among oppressed groups, just in general. And I'm going to stick to that until you prove me wrong. <laughs> I'm willing to be wrong, and I'm willing to not cut this out of the podcast if I am wrong. But that has been my experience in my study, <laughs> is that uh, when, you, when they are in a position of power, people tend to want incremental bureaucratic change. When people are... Uh, are are in a place of trauma and oppression, they are looking outside for some grand hope because they've lost hope in the system. But I, I, I don't buy that. Here we go. I, I just, I'm not arguing for incremental change. I think that's the piece that I would okay. press back against. Right. So, and here's where I would I would want to draw a distinction, right? What you have described to me is prophetic critique, not apocalypse, right? The call for an absurdist, and I use that term sort of technically and intentionally, right? The call hmm. for an absurdist vision of hope in the face of existential dread, that I can get behind. I'm okay with that. That makes a lot of sense. I don't think that's what apocalypse does. Really? What do you think it does? I am never Just real sure what it's trying to do. Placates the masses? Yes, basically, is what I would argue. <laughs> I hmm. think if it, if I really were pressed about trying to articulate what I think apocalypse does, I think it makes people feel good. See, and I would put this movie, I'd put all of the young adult fiction that's coming out now, you know, the hunger games and that kind of dystopian nightmares that they all seem to want in that same category where, where back then it was the constant threat of new empires that were taking over and destroying cultures left and right. 
And now it's the constant threat of global war, catastrophe, and climate change that for younger people, especially, they don't see a future. And so their fiction is then draped in these absurdist dystopian worlds where nothing makes sense anymore, but in the end people prevail. And that's the kind of the narrative. That's, that's the, the formula is things get worse. They get worse. They get the worst they can be. Some outside force helps people to overcome. And in the end, everything works out. Okay. And it's the cycle that I, I think are just using, we're just using different images now than we used to, but I think we're telling the same story. would i would it would take some convincing to to mm. make me sort of go there i i wonder if time is the difference then that's because exactly what i was about to say <laughs> nobody is using the hunger games to justify their policy positions the way that they use the book of revelation to because it's old and old things carry more authority oh never mind that's not what i was oh. going to say no but i was going to <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to say that um, I think in me, this is just me trying to still fight against Adam's interpretation of, of the film. Um, but I, I, I do think like that, the film. I'm sorry. I just. This, no, I mean, it's, it's yeah. fine. I'm just um, going to prove you wrong. So um, the. <laughs> just so kidding, glad I'm Adam. not alone. You can think whatever you want, but. Um, it's just really a lot of fun to watch this. I. I think the like another reason that I don't it just doesn't make sense to me to see this movie as escapist or as trying to placate people with an apocalyptic story is because I think like it's easy to uh interpret this film as being about death or like fighting death in a sense like fighting the death of our species but and I say that because I think it's really easy to make almost anything about death. Um, I study like death a lot and I just think about death a lot. And so <laughs> any film I watch, I can be like, oh, yeah, that's about death. But <laughs> uh, for Interstellar, I think that time is more important than death. And yes, they are connected. Mm. Definitely. But and and I think like even if you w watch um like read interviews with Christopher Nolan and even in the story itself, uh, Michael Caine's character, uh, Dr. Brand, says at one point in the film, like, I'm not afraid of death. What I'm afraid of is time. Mm. And I think that the story and, and Christopher Nolan loves to play with time in his films. Um, but in Interstellar, it seems that Cooper and like all the connections that the characters have they are, it's not that they're like, well, they are sometimes fighting against time, but the like arc of the story, I think is, uh, what am I trying to say here? I think I'm, I've just lost my train of thought. Dang it. Give me one second. It'll come back to me. No, the train has left the station. <laughs> I, so here's what I'll say. I, I I do I I think actually you and I are are a lot closer about the interpretation of this film than 
than maybe you would want to give credit for. Because I also think time is actually the central feature of what's yeah. going on, right? Is is And not... Oh, the, like, I got what I have to say. Oh, Can okay, I interrupt? Go. Yeah. Okay, just real quick. I think one of the things that um, I find more hopeful about time as the centerpiece rather than like death as the centerpiece is that in time, the story feels like people still have to take more responsibility because we're not thinking about death coming and like destroying our species, but time and how do you work, like push against time to compress us as a species. And there are so many different ways that that happens. And some of the ways I think in the film that we can see even like minor, minor means through which Christopher Nolan is exploring uh, the limitations of time, like the bookshelf in the movie that we see over and over again and obviously plays a really important role in the Tesseract scene. But uh, there, there is a moment where you can see some of the books spread out on the floor and those books are telling stories about time. Um, and like, I can't remember all of the books that are on the floor, but I think one of the books is like The Time Machine and like three or four mm, okay. others. But just the fact that like time or writing down stories and narratives that we take with us into the future so that we we are always building upon the past. And we see that like in written accounts, but also in the story itself, Cooper could not have done what he did without the happenings like before and after him. I mean, again, I'm like switching back and forth between speaking about like linear time versus this circular or like space time understanding of time. But things are so interconnected. And I think the peak of the time story is when you realize that there is interconnection and that we are all like responsible for each other. And I think that seems a lot more like hopeful and collective rather than an apocalyptic story in the way that you, you've been talking about this, Adam, which is perhaps more about just like trying to not die, whether that means like individually or you know, you have your collective interests too, but it's a little easier to forget about the collective responsibility than when time is the centerpiece because it, like, you can't separate space and time in a space-time grid. Yeah, no, 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 that that <clears throat> makes a lot of sense to me. And and I think what I would then question, right, is if time becomes the centerpiece of how it is that you interpret this movie, is it still apocalyptic? Or is it, is that not actually the genre that's describing what's going on? And and so this is for me where like I would call the movie highly eschatological, hmm. but I'm not sure I'd call it apocalyptic if you make time that centerpiece. Apocalypse it, means a, a revealing. It it's at the heart of it is not just the es- eschatological, but it is it is the coming forth. It is the breaking through of something from the other side that brings a solution to the modern problem that can't be solved by our conventional means. And so I would say that the that wormhole that opens up mysteriously, the giving of information through the fourth dimension from brand, all of that is very apocalyptic in in the literal sense of it. So what strikes me about the Tesseract scene is that the way in which it functions, these 
these open stacks in which every moment of Cooper's life is available. What struck me about that is it's the almost the exact description that my own dissertation advisor wrote for what heaven would be like. Hmm. That if you talk about preserving a notion of linear time within the construct of eternity, heaven looks something like this, potentially. What's fascinating to me about that then is if you, if you make time the centerpiece in that regard in the movie, it's not the sort of deus ex machina structure of an apocalypticism. It's a sense of eternity woven into the fabric of nature itself. Mm. That's a vision of the movie that I can get behind as being really, really important. But I think there's this <clears throat> interesting feature of how we interpret and read the movie. Is it about death? Is it about time? Is it about a sort of notion of salvation? Or is it about this almost intraactive quality of the relational moments that Cooper discovers? And that in turn, we each as individuals could also discover, which I think is, is really brilliant. Hmm. But I feel like that's those are almost two different movies by the time you're done. And I don't think they necessarily can be put I – don't, I don't know if you can hold both of those together. There's a little part of me that feels like you have to sort of choose one interpretation or the other. And I like mine. <laughs> <laughs> you would. So privileged. <laughs> <laughs> This has been episode 36 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. A big thanks to all our supporters on patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast and all you who are still listening to podcasts even without a daily commute. My hope for you is that thinking about ancient apocalyptic anxieties would help you to know that you are actually in really good company. So let's stick together, friends. Also, make sure you check out downthewormhole.com for show notes, links to further reading, and more. Next week, we are finishing up our mini-series with my very first PG-13 movie, Jurassic Park. So hold on to your butts. We're talking dinosaurs, DNA, ethics, and why John Williams is the most powerful man alive. Until then. I feel like today, time flew. <laughs> hey. <laughs>